Welcome to Poetry Lectures, a series of lectures by poets, scholars, and educators presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, Peter Sachs finds common themes between the paintings of Edward Hopper and the works of poets such as Robert Frost, Elizabeth Bishop, and T.S. Eliot. In a career spanning much of the 20th century, Edward Hopper concentrated on two main subjects, scenes of everyday life in urban America and seascapes or rural landscapes. Light and shadow figure prominently in his paintings, creating geometric patterns. People in Hopper's paintings are often isolated, rarely interacting with one another. Peter Sachs is a poet, scholar, and painter, and he is the author of five collections of poetry and numerous essays and books about poetry. He was born and raised in South Africa and currently teaches literature and creative writing at Harvard University. The talk you're about to hear was part of American Perspectives, a collaboration of the Art Institute of Chicago, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and the Poetry Foundation. It took place on March 13, 2008. Here's Peter Sachs speaking on Beautiful Estrangements, reading in the light of Edward Hopper. I was here 40 years ago as an exchange student from South Africa and um, was brought to this museum and could hardly believe that such places existed. And a life that has followed being so completely enthralled and inhabiting works of art, um, I, I, I didn't dream at that time as a 17-year-old that I might be coming back even to Chicago, even to the United States. But to come back to this extraordinary museum and to be speaking here is moving and as mysterious as um, Hopper's paintings uh, themselves are in their strange relation to time. I hope it's clear that what I'll be doing is floating through many, many images of Hopper. I'm not going to be giving a talk about the paintings. This isn't art history or art criticism. It's really a commentary illustrated with literary texts. And I'd like to begin my literary slant on this master of slants with a poem of Emily Dickinson's, number 258. This, of course, is one of the last paintings, Sun in an Empty Room. And the poem, as I'll explain in a moment, is written in tiny rooms of four-line quatrains. There's a certain slant of light winter afternoons that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. Heavenly hurt it gives us. We can find no scar but internal difference where the meanings are. None may teach it, any. Tis the seal despair an imperial affliction sent us of the air. When it comes, the landscape listens. Shadows hold their breath. When it goes, tis like the distance on the look of death. So it's not just the geometric form and content of the poem, uh, nor the imagined slant of light that seems to go as if across these rectangles, you imagine that happening. Um, 
It's not just that that brings it to mind this late winter or early spring afternoon in the presence of Edward Harper. Remember that the word stanza in poetry derives from the word room in Italian. And Harper's rigorously self-framing and formally self-partitioning paintings, not only of rooms after rooms or rooms within rooms, are, I would say, themselves intensely stanzaic. He's drawn to regular, regularly demarcated repeating intervals. He paints in stanzas. But I'm just as interested in Dickinson's knowing that we can find no scar for the hurt which, minute by minute, inch by inch, that blade of light, wielded by time itself, inflicts. No scar other than internal difference, that is, a gap or interval, a space where the meanings, comma, are dash, stanza break. I think Hopper alone can paint Dickinson's dashes, their way of keeping apart what they also miraculously connect by making us somehow undergo the interval of each dash. Just as he may be one of the only painters to show us exactly how shadows hold their breath, and he does so in ways that are so rigidly defined that they make us hold our own breath. After all, you almost have to stop breathing to keep time from moving up the wall, as it would in real time. So what kind of time are we inhabiting when we look at a work like this? So no scar other than internal difference, this gap where the meanings are. Dickinson does not say what the meanings are, but where they are. She names their place, their site. I feel that however solidly objective his works, Hopper paints the where of internal as much as of external difference. Remember of this painting he said, I'm after me. These are the sites where meanings, precisely those hardest to name, take up their immovable place in us, as well as between us and other persons, between us and our surroundings. In both Dickinson and Hopper, there is brilliance, rigor, and a formally relentless dash, obliquity. I could get into putting dashes into this whole speech here but one which also defines apartness. And this obliquity in, the, in, in these artists makes me think that they are somehow portraying their own peculiarly sharp angle to time and to space, to the world. A later poem of Dickinson, 1129, begins, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. To stay with internal difference for just a minute, one of these differences within us, within each of us, and I'm by Hopper sensitized to the way in which everyone here is a singularity and yet there are multiples, there are many stairs, there are many seats, 
practically all we need is some tall blonde woman to stand on the side there with her head down, and uh, we'll have the movie theater of New York 1939. But I'm aware of the strange tension between singularity and multiplicity. So in each of us, there is this further difference, which I would say may be between competing ways of looking. Are we an invited participant or a carefully detached and framed off passerby, a spectator for whom the very question of access to and responsibility for what we see is put literally on edge? What is the right emotional and ethical, not just visual distance between us and the painting? His ability to pose such a question, to have it oppress and afflict us without an answer, even as it becomes an accentuating, even scarring part of our aesthetic experience, is no small part of his modernity as well as his genius. Although they have given rise to much poetry and prose amongst contemporary writers, John Hollander, uh, Mark Strand above all in both poetry and prose, the paintings of Harper do not seem to be overtly literary in any simple way. Matter of fact, unadorned, forbiddingly laconic in design, surface, lighting, and overt content, they seem to have no need of additional language. They stand on the near or the very far side of speech, where speech has fallen silent. Even where they do include a verbal sign, or where they may portray acts of reading, these occur in such states of emptied out publicity on the one hand, or such privacy isolation on the other, they appear so drastically to prevent conversation that one does not feel invited to bring yet more language into the pictorial space. Neither the space of the painting, nor that of the room or the condition in which we view it. Perhaps we should say that his paintings suppress, press flat the anecdote that they may otherwise also imply. So, silence, inner and outer silence, indeed seems so absolute that it comes to govern every inch of the work, including the work of seeing. Where they do invoke narrative, that invocation is cropped away by a feeling that also every visually enforced impasse verges on impassivity. Yet such impassivity is in tension with tension itself. So you get this atmosphere that is at once resigned yet charged. There's a high, dry, glaring clarity, but of what exactly? If not of settings that are poised between impacted ambiguity on the one hand and sheer vacancy on the other. I think of the poet Philip Larkin's description in a poem simply called Here of, quote, existence facing the sun, untalkative, out of reach or his mention in the same poem of removed lives, loneliness clarifies. And it seems to me that many Hopper paintings are at states of remove where they are not just about solitude or clarity, but where they become isolating 
and clarifying agents themselves. They clear the air on what remains mysterious. They clarify our sight itself, but not our ability to solve or resolve what we see. Every story or commentary or softening lyrical address is usually cleaved away by Harper. The visual fields themselves are often formally cleft or blocked by horizontal, vertical, or diagonal shafts of light or frames. It's partly why he likes to paint windows, especially large, paned ones, many of them plate glass. Uh, plate glass about whose, quote, unmitigated publicity Henry James complained at the beginning of the 20th century on his return to this country. I do recommend his great work, uh, The American Scene, and I'll be referring to it during the evening. Henry James commented with such passionate distrust during the very years in which Hopper was beginning to paint about such unmitigated publicity, the proscription of privacy. Within their rigid interior frameworks, Hopper's stark lights and shadows separate rather than modulate. The dividing light itself tends to be high and dried out, or frankly, unnatural, electric. This is not the mobilizing counter-reformation slant light of Caravaggio's chiaroscuro, nor the warm, granular, Protestant humanist light of Rembrandt. And it's certainly not the mellow lucency of Vermeer. Absolutely it's not that vaporous, changeable, refractive light of Constable, Turner, or indeed the Impressionists. And if the severe, unmodulated force and angle of Harper's lights do sometimes recall scenarios of possible annunciation, this is annunciation without an angel, without a saving text to lift or carry the scene beyond its rigid state of isolation. If there are actual books in the composition, uh, they're closed, they're piled on each other, they even form a kind of eye rhyme with this immobilizing and trapping triangle here that keeps this woman herself on a threshold of dress and undress, the shoes, her way of getting out of there, but look at all the ways in which she is blocked in formally as well. So the books are offering no real way in, no real way out. And yet, Hopper himself was intensely literary, perhaps the most literary painter of his generation. This is a 1936 drawing he made uh, of himself and his basket of books. And I'm hoping that you can make out from where you are um, the titles or the names of the authors, but you will see a copy of Verlaine's poetry. Um, you'll see Henry James. You'll see Proust. You'll see Ibsen. And you'll see Santayana's The Last Puritan. But other favorites include Zola, Turgenev, Tolstoy, Poe, Emerson, Melville, Hemingway, of course, Dos Passos also, of course, a friend, Robert Frost, Whitman, Andre Gide, very cosmopolitan, wide-ranging. Uh, Gail Levin's biography gives a very good account of this intellectual literary side 
of Hopper's life. In what follows, though, I've chosen mostly to avoid poems or prose that are explicitly about Hopper's work, so as not to simply re-describe the paintings. And there is, I should say, a very good anthology of poems that are direct homages to Hopper that Gay Levin did edit. And it would have been very easy for me simply to page through reading those poems. But that would have been outrageous as well as uh, useless, since you can do that yourselves. So what I'll be doing instead is to suggest analogs and oblique illuminations of the sense and reach of Hopper's work. Two other books that could have been in that basket I might mention are uh, Jung and Freud. He read both with great interest. And there is something about Hopper's way, way of finding the archetypal as it collides with the modern, just as there is, referring to Freud, a strange way in which he stretches the manifest tightly over um, what feels like the irretrievably latent. So his Patience, um, Hopper's patients are pretty silent, as well as we know the analysts are silent. But these are usually quiet sessions in Hopper's rooms. But let's begin with one of Hopper's own favorite poems. And this is a Christmas card he made for his wife Jo, a Mademoiselle Jo, Noel, 1923. And he's quoting a poet whose work was in that basket the 19th century French symbolist poet Verlaine. And you can see how unusual this picture is. You never see figures that intimately together in Hopper. They're always apart. And this is a nostalgic fiction, really, since they were never together in Paris. Hopper was there from 1906 to 1910, a very influential moment, a moment when T.S. Eliot was there, when Henri Bergson was lecturing on time and memory. And you could say that what this is is a fiction of nostalgia. But let's look at the poem for a moment, and I will translate it afterwards. Un vaste et tendre apaisement semble descendre du firmament que l'astre irise, c'est l'heure exquise. Verlaine's lines rhyme. You can see this, A, B, A, B, C, C. And I think, well, I should translate that. A vast and tender peacefulness or rest or pacification descends, seems to descend from the heavens, which the celestial light, starlight, irradiates. It is the exquisite hour. But what I'd like to get at is that I believe Hopper had a visual equivalent for rhyme, a fascination with repetitive patterning, even rhythm and cadence. And these remain a strong formalist imperative long after he had mixed a few gallons of American turpentine to this never quite erasable romanticism on view in this sketch. In fact, the tension between Hopper's astringent American pragmatism on the one hand and his continued, perhaps suppressed, depth of emotion is one of the most compelling features of his work. 
Another European poem, and this will be the only other one in another language, but it is interesting that he liked to quote these poems in their original languages, is the famous poem of Goethe, The Wanderer's Nachtlied, number two, The Wayfarer's Night Song. And here again, you'll see the rhyme scheme being quite important. Uber um, allen gipfeln ist ruh. The word for peace, for restfulness, it's exactly in the same place as Verlaine's apaisement. Über allen Gipfeln ist Ruh, in allen Wipfeln spürest du kaum einen Hauch. Die Vogelein schweigen im Walde, warte nur, balde, ruhest du auch. Over all the hilltops there is peace, rest. In all the treetops, you can't trace the merest breath. The little birds keep silent in the forest. Only wait. Soon, you too will be at rest. So he probably liked, again, the strict rhyme, probably liked the short-lined, suspenseful emphasis on waiting, the sharply defined edges of the lineation here, surrounded by silence, the blank space of the page. There's an ambivalent longing for rest, for rue, but Hopper's own wayfarer's scenes are very different from those of Goethe. However stilled, his wayfarers are almost never in a state of genuine rest. Rather, they are arrested. They show not arrival, but stoppage, as if en route, a state of interruption that inexplicably goes on forever. Under such arrest, Wayfaring or wandering with an A may turn at best to wandering with an O, a zone of blank inscrutability or receding inwardness. In Hopper, there is no soothing, soon you too will be at rest. In fact, there's no such thing in Hopper as soon. We're irrevocably in the moment, cut off from genuine repose whether in nature, in cities, between persons, or within ourselves. I think of Henry James saying in the American scene, no, what you are reduced to for importance is the present, pure and simple, squaring itself between an absent future and an absent past as solidly as it can. So, an almost paralyzing problem of the what next, or the how next, how to move. This predicament of what I'd call, what I'd call stranded nomadism strikes me as characteristic of the American 20th century for all its apparent speed and mobility. Think of Hopper's roads and railroads, his hotels and his motels, his bridges, his way stations, his gas stations, they all intensify this most American of truths, anomic velocity in a kind of checkmate with absolute stasis. Every mode of transport checked by a sense of there being nowhere else genuinely, genuinely else to go, no real transformation or otherness down the road. He's painting into the decades not only of increasingly uniform mass production and consumption, but of increasing anonymity, the urban and suburban replaceability of what used to be individual things, 
moments, houses, persons. To flip a coined phrase, there's no place that doesn't feel unlike home in Harper. No place that doesn't feel like a displacement. And the traveler is as much cut off from the past as from the future. He is our great painter of ruptured sequence, of apartness. And again, I'm responding to the compositional structure, not simply the illustrative content of his paintings. Staying with instances of Hopper's explicit poetic interests, the poems that he himself loved, he paid tribute to Shakespeare in this painting of Shakespeare at dusk. It's Shakespeare, the statue off to the margin, a necessarily wordless statue marooned not only in the 1930s, but in Central Park, New York. And it's strange the way the large public letters U.S. Uh, are at this immovable distance from the unillegible Mr. W.S. Uh, or any words of his. Uh, Hopper made this painting in 1935. He was 53. It was a year in which he lost a very close friend, a year in which his mother died. And I do think mortality was starting to press in on his consciousness. And since there's no text in the picture, it's perhaps one that we need to summon. And we have, fortunately, the knowledge that he was placing this painting at a moment not only of autumn, but of dusk, thinking of Sonnet 73 of Shakespeare. That time of year thou mayest in me behold, when yellow leaves, or none, or few, do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare, ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away, death's second self that seals up all in rest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. The sonnet, a single room, frames a state of intense syntactic suspension. It's designed to keep us and the beloved hanging like the leaves, the few leaves. The poem hangs between leaving and not leaving, which is a state of so many Hopper paintings that arrest. The interlocking subordinate clauses form a kind of trap. Once the speaker starts each four-line sentence, you have to wait until he's finished, and he does keep you hanging, clause by dependent clause, period by period, each four lines at a time, until the lockup of that final couplet, a genuine emotional impasse. When Hopper locks up a painting, 
he tends to throw away the key. Now, Hopper's favorite American poet, not surprisingly, was Robert Frost. Gail Levin quotes Hopper in an interview with Richard Leahy in which he said, Robert Frost is a real person. When he came down to deliver a speech at the Institute of Arts and Letters, and most of the members were there, including myself, right after the speech, he came down to greet me. According to Leahy, the interviewer, Joe then interrupted and said, yes, and he put his arms around you and embraced you and said, you, Hopper, I was really talking to you throughout that speech of mine. I like your work very much. Now, Hopper often referred to his love of poems such as Come In or Stopping by Woods. And he praised Frost's way of being, quote, concretely pictorial. Now, I'm going to read Come In, and I suppose one could envision a scene blurrily like this if you could transpose it into dusk, nightfall coming on, with the viewer brought much closer to the tree line. And instead of lingering on this, I'll go back to imagine Edward himself reading the poem to you. Come in. It's a poem in which you both listen and look. As I came to the edge of the woods, thrush music, hark. Now, if it was dusk outside, inside it was dark. Too dark in the woods for a bird by sleight of wing to better its perch for the night, though it still could sing. The last of the light of the sun that had died in the west still lived for one song more in a thrush's breast. Far in the pillared dark, thrush music went, almost like a call to come in to the dark and lament. But no, I was out for stars. I would not come in. I mean, not even if asked, and I hadn't been. The poem is in strict quatrains, again, almost with their ABCB rhyme scheme, ballad-like, though Frost's briefer three-beat lines alternating in a slant with those two-beat lines creates um, the repeated shortfall of hesitation, step forward, step back, that hesitation at the edge that is the edge of light and dark, a stoppage on the threshold, the birdsong's allure checked by the speaker's final disinclination to go in, a disinclination which leans on the absence of explicit invitation. That combination of invitation, disinvitation is something I feel on the threshold of many Hopper paintings. It's an exact threshold poem, and you hear and see why Hopper loved its balance of beckoning and exclusion, its precise but quiet dramatization of a pause itself. Now, other poems that would go very well with Hopper would be Home Burial, with its use of architectural spatial composition in order to dramatize both mortal and marital estrangement, or poem like The Black Cottage, which I think is an underestimated, very haunting poem 
the black cottage a poem in which the speaker enters a house that has been vacated temporarily by a widow. And when he goes into the house, he sees a daguerreotype on the wall, which is her dead husband who died in the Civil War. So you have frame within frame, room within room of desolation. And I urge you to read The Black Cottage. I don't have time to do so here. Now, despite scenes like these, Frost may seem too purely pastoral for Hopper. And it's true that most of Hopper's paintings of houses or landscapes have their foregrounds starkly interrupted, crossed by unpastoral railings, roads or railroads, railroad trains. It's a part of his estranging visual syntax, the way of making not just a divider, but a divider precisely out of what might otherwise function as a means of connection that runs at a diagonal or at horizontal cross-purposes to the scene. He's the great painter of segments, like sections of railway track. But his parts tend to remain segmented, sometimes forever severed. Well, to give you a feeling for this sense of mismatch and the unease uh, that it provokes, I'm going to read a poem about a railway track by Elizabeth Bishop, and it's called Chemin de Fer, Railway. And it's not about the Hopper painting. <laughs> Alone on the railway track, I walked with pounding heart. The ties were too close together, or maybe too far apart. The scenery was impoverished, scrub pine and oak, Beyond its mingled gray-green foliage, I saw the little pond where the dirty hermit lives lie like an old tear holding on to its injuries, lucidly, year after year. The hermit shot off his shotgun, and the tree by his cabin shook. Over the pond went a ripple. The pet hen went chook-chook. Love should be put into action, screamed the old hermit. Across the pond, an echo tried and tried to confirm it. So the poem strands us between that assertion of the need for love and its hollow repeating tried and tried to confirm it hollow like Dickinson's scar of internal difference, where the meanings not only are, but here accumulate as injuries. Here the meaning inhabits, if we can call it that, the impossible bypass of train track and cabin, as well as the echoing threshold and distance between isolation and lovelessness, something that Hopper experienced quite deeply. An echo tried and tried to confirm it. Hopper's visual equivalent of oral echoing, that phenomenon is beautifully demonstrated by this painting, Gas, from 1940. So this filling station on an empty road, no car, only the solitary attendant putting the nozzle back into one of the pumps on its island after some car, perhaps the last for the night, has left. 
And to stress this echoic device, I'll read another Elizabeth Bishop poem, which is actually called Filling Station. Again, she's not writing of Hopper's painting, though they were contemporaries. You'll see that his station is too clean. Hers is rather dirty, and hers includes a family. And his is a mobile station, and hers, crucially, is an Esso station. <laughs> oh, but it is dirty, this little filling station, oil-soaked, oil-permeated, to a disturbing overall black translucency. Be careful with that match. Father wears a dirty, oil-soaked monkey suit that cuts him under the arms, and several quick and saucy and greasy sons assist him. It's a family filling station, all quite thoroughly dirty. Do they live in the station? It has a cement porch behind the pumps, and on it a set of crushed and grease-impregnated wickerwork on the wicker sofa, a dirty dog, quite comfy. Some comic books provide the only note of color, of certain color. They lie upon a big, dim doily, draping a tabaret, part of the set, beside a big hirsute begonia. Why the extraneous plant? Why the tabaret? Why, oh why, the doily? embroidered in daisy stitch with marguerites, I think, and heavy with gray crochet. Somebody embroidered the doily. Somebody waters the plants, or oils it, maybe. <laughs> Somebody arranges the cans, the, arranges the rows of cans so that they softly say, Esso, so, 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 to high-strung automobiles. Somebody loves us all. This receding echoic device, here's the last stanza, and you can feel it in that somebody beginning with the word, with the, with the letters S-O, and somebody is S-O, of course, and somebody again is S-O, and then you come to S-O, so, so, so. Somebody loves us all. It's a statement that's hard to believe, an almost arbitrary wishful positing, like a counter echo to the mere repetition of S-O, so, so. But what if the aesthetic commitment in the poem to embroidery, to floral arrangement, even the arrangement of cans, what if these suggest something like love? What if that kind of aesthetic care reflects Hopper's capacity or desire for a certain contact, the touch of the brush, the conferral of order, the care of it all, something tantamount to love, however loveless the content? This is the later four-lane road. Like the visually echoic lights of gas, here is a similar track of receding lights in an equally famous painting, and the paintings look so glorious the way they are disposed. There's so much intelligence in their arrangement. 
but here is automat, and you could imagine those receding lights up there echoing those of the gas. But this is from the 19 from 1927, and that multiplied ceiling lights receding in the glass reflection like a series of inverted hats without bodies. Uh, by this time, Automat's restaurants were serving up to 10,000 people a day. You simply went in, you, there was no human exchange, you put in the coins, you got what you wanted. Um, and so this woman's singularity is intensified, not just by the huge plate glass wall behind her, but by her being one of what we assume to be 10,000 like her, and yet she is alone. Henry James wrote uh, not only of plate glass, but of what he called merciless multiplication. Think of Hopper's hotel rooms, each guest about to be replaced by the next. But with Automat, I hear the last three lines of T.S. Eliot's strange poem, very seldom read, uh, from the same decade, called A Cooking Egg. And it's set in England, where tea rooms called ABCs were amongst the first of these repeated multiple chain-like restaurants in which individuality was so compromised by sheer multiplicity. And the last three lines read, over buttered scones and crumpets, weeping, weeping multitudes droop in a hundred ABCs. Robert Lowell has a poem which I won't read. It's called Eating Out Alone. But he does have a line which says, the loneliness inside me is a place. And instead, I'm going to read a piece of prose that I feel has great intimacy with this painting. Again, not aware of the painting, but it's from Virginia Woolf's novel, The Waves of 1931, in which a protagonist sits alone in a public dining place. Quote, I am alone now. That almost unknown person is gone. To catch some train, to take some cab, to go to some place or person whom I do not know. The face looking at me has gone. The pressure is removed. Here are empty coffee cups. Here are chairs turned, but nobody sits on them. Here are empty tables and nobody any more coming to dine at them tonight. Let me be alone. Let me cast and throw away this veil of being, this cloud that changes with the least breath, night and day and all night and all day. While I sat here, I have been changing. I have watched the sky change. Now, I look at the changing no more. Now, no one sees me, and I change no more. No one, that is, but you and I. I quoted Virginia Woolf's friend T.S. Eliot a moment ago, and while posing for Joe, it might interest you to know that Hopper was reading Eliot's essays. He often read while he was posing. And he liked Eliot's essays very much. And you can imagine the resonance between Hopper's work and such ideas as the objective correlative or impersonality, 
or tradition and the individual talent. They all seem right for him. Not to mention the lines from the wasteland, speak, right? Speak to me. Why do you never speak? Speak. What are you thinking of? What thinking? What? But I'm thinking of Eliot's earlier preludes, the essence of routinized urban solitude, the entrapment of transient lodges in furnished rooms. And I'll read just two painting-like panels of this section poem. The morning comes to consciousness of faint, stale smells of beer from the sawdust trampled street with all its muddy feet that press to early coffee stands with the other masquerades that time resumes. One thinks of all the hands that are raising dingy shades in a thousand furnished rooms. And then this is panel three of Preludes. You tossed a blanket from the bed. You lay upon your back and waited. You dozed and watched the night revealing the thousand sordid images of which your soul was constituted. They flickered against the ceiling. And when all the world came back and the light crept up between the shutters and you heard the sparrows in the gutters, you had such a vision of the street as the street hardly understands. Sitting along the bed's edge where you curled the papers from your hair or clasped the yellow soles of feet in the palms of both soiled hands. Well, there's no shortage in Harper of immobilized scenes of isolation, not just in states of exposure or undress, but they are without redress. And now I'm going to break my rule about not reading poems that are in direct um, homage to Hopper by reading a poem that you may not yet know, because it was one of the very last poems before he died that Czeslav Milos wrote. And it only appeared after his death in the translation by Robert Haas in Robert Haas's most recent book of poems. And it's called A Hotel Room, 1931 and it's a kind of direct homage to Harper. Oh, what sadness, unaware that it's sadness. What despair that doesn't know it's despair. A businesswoman, her unpacked suitcase on the floor, sits on a bed half undressed in red underwear, her hair impeccable. She has a piece of paper in her hand, probably with numbers? Who are you? Nobody will ask. She doesn't know either. And the second exception to my rule um, is another poem about the same painting, which you can actually find in that anthology I mentioned. And it's by Larry Levis. And I won't read the whole poem just the beginning and the end. The young woman is just sitting on the bed, looking down. The room is so narrow, she keeps her elbows tucked in, resting on her bare thighs, as if that could help. 
And then Levis continues with a projected backstory. The woman has come west to Kansas to put her mother in an insane asylum and to uh, sell the family house. And maybe she's looking at some piece of document that has to do with that. And then he turns to address the figure who began in the poem as a she and has now become a you, almost like Eliot's you tossed a blanket from the bed. That address somehow charging, making implicit the distance, the inaudibility that severs us from the one who's being addressed. And Levis says, having speculated that she might move on to California, but you never moved never roused yourself to go down Grain Street to the sobering station, never gazed out at the raw tracks and waited for the train that pushed its black smoke up into the sky like something important. And now it's too late for you. Now no one turning his collar up against the cold to walk past the first full sunlight flooding the white sides of houses knows why you've kept on sitting here for 40 years, alone, almost left out of the picture, half undressed. Hopper is a master of these scenes of particularly women in states of isolation, and the poet who most comes to mind as a correspondent voice for me is Randall Jarrell, and I'm going to read his great poem called Next Day. And in some ways, I think this poem might be the centerpiece of what I'll be presenting. It begins a woman shopping alone in a supermarket, having to choose from rows and rows of identical brand name commodities, detergents, kinds of things like that. And the issue of identity is itself in jeopardy with sheer unexceptionality, ordinariness. And Jarrell wrote the poem in very carefully rhymed six-line stanzas, and they're slant-shaped. The poem takes about four minutes to read, but there'll be four uh, of sort of hopper minutes. Moving from cheer, the brand name, to joy, the brand name, from joy to all, I take a box and add it to my wild rice, my Cornish game hens, the slacked or shorted, basketed, identical food-gathering flocks, ourselves I overlook. Wisdom, said William James, is learning what to overlook, and I am wise if that is wisdom. Yet somehow, as I buy all from these shelves and the boy takes it to my station wagon, what I've become troubles me, even if I shut my eyes. When I was young and miserable and pretty and poor, I'd wish what all girls wish, to have a husband, a house, and children. Now that I'm old, my wish is womanish, that the boy putting groceries in my car see me. It bewilders me he doesn't see me. For so many years I was good enough to eat. The world looked at me and its mouth watered. 
How often they have undressed me, the eyes of strangers. And holding their flesh within my flesh, their vile imaginings within my imagining, I too have taken the chance of life. Now the boy pats my dog and we start home. Now I am good. The last mistaken, ecstatic, accidental bliss, the blind happiness that bursting leaves upon the palm some soap and water. It was so long ago, back in some gay 20s, 90s, I don't know. Today, I miss my lovely daughter, away at school, my sons away at school, my husband away at work. I wish for them, the dog, the maid, and I go through the same unvarying days at home in them. As I look at my life, I am afraid only that it will change as I am changing. I am afraid this morning of my face. It looks at me from the rear view mirror with the eyes I hate, the smile I hate, its plain lined look of gray discovery repeats to me, you're old, that's all, I'm old. And yet, I'm afraid, as I was at the funeral I went to yesterday, my friend's cold made up face, granite among its flowers, her undressed, operated on, dressed body, were my face and body. As I think of her, I hear her telling me how young I seem. I am exceptional. I think of all I have. But really, no one is exceptional. No one has anything. I'm anybody. I stand beside my grave, confused with my life that is commonplace and solitary. I can think of few painters so driven as well as so able to apprehend the jarring conflict, this intolerable co-sensation, even within one person, of exceptionality on the one hand and the commonplace and solitary on the other. Now I could take a moment and refer to many other writers, prose writers included, other poets uh, with whom I think there are interesting affinities, even though their verse may not be as regularly formal as some of the poems I've quoted. I think of William Carlos Williams, so much depends on the red wheelbarrow, or his beautiful poem, Light in March, or the objectivist Zukovsky, or George Oppen, Lorene Nidecker, and the original master of projective verse, who is a fellow portraitist of Gloucester, Massachusetts, Charles Olson. Among the prose writers, apart from Proust and others mentioned at the beginning, I'd stress again Henry James, not only for his novels, but for that great work, The American Scene. And I'll skip some marvelous quotes from that in order to move forward to this painting, which is not exactly avoidable. 
Uh, it's waiting for us all at the corner. Of course, he loved Dos Passos and Sherwood Anderson and Theodore Dreiser and Raymond Chandler and film noir. And we probably all remember Chandler's uh, Philip Marlowe saying, walking into a coffee counter and saying, give us two coffees, black, strong, made this year. <laughs> but the text that most haunts me behind this painting is a text that Hopper himself loved so much that he wrote a letter to the editor when he read it in 1927, and it was Hemingway's The Killers. And I'm sure you're all familiar with that story, um, but you might want to reread it, not just for the content, but for the style, because it has Hopper's flatness of tone, the abrupt formal structure with its intricate sentence-by-sentence -sentence checks and balances, its acts of looking at people who are themselves looking intently, who are waiting, who are trapped. And this is Hemingway's way of stylistically creating the kind of suspense and absolute impasse that one gets visually in uh, Hopper. Notice the plate glass window again, doubling our excluded spectatorhood while setting a maximum paradoxical stylistic transparency. And that ordinary yet eerie exposed luminosity, corner within corner, cast out into the night all with this wedged construction of a literally tight set of corners from which there's no escape. So instead of reading, um, since I think I'm going to move towards a close uh, from The Killers, except perhaps this one sentence which suggests how aware Hemingway was of visual composition, he says one of the um, killers speaks. I can hear you all right, Al said from the kitchen. He had propped open the slit that dishes passed through into the kitchen with a catsup bottle. Listen, bright boy, he said from the kitchen to George. Stand a little further along the bar. You move a little to the left, Max. He was like a photographer arranging for a group picture. Talk to me, bright boy, Max said. What do you think's gonna happen? George did not say anything. I'll tell you, Max said. We're going to kill a Swede. So, there's this brief description of moving out into the outside, the arc light shone through the bare branches of a tree. Nick, center of consciousness, walked up the street beside the car tracks turned at the next arc light down a side street. Three houses up the street was Hirsch's rooming house. Nick walked up the two steps and pushed the bell. A woman came to the door. And of course, he's gone to warn the Swede who has catatonically given up, turned his face to the wall, absolute impasse. And Nick walked back up the dark street to the corner under the arc light and then along the car tracks to Henry's eating house. George was inside, back of the counter. Now, instead of ending with this dark note, I'm going to end with the bright light of lighthouses.
and I've just got about five minutes here at most. Um, and I could quote Virginia Woolf again, um, her beautiful description of the lighthouse in her novel to the lighthouse from 1925, or even more, that astonishing account in the middle of the novel, Time Passes, in which you have light moving through an empty room. Remember, the Ramsey family has vacated their summer house for the duration of the First World War, and the description of the light moving up the wall is, and stealing over everything, is exceptionally Hopper-esque. But I'm going back to um, perhaps the poet of the evening, Elizabeth Bishop, and before I read the last 10 lines of poetry for the night, I would like to notice that Hopper almost never paints, and there's that beautiful room of his lighthouses, he never paints the beam at night. So it's not the light cast by the lighthouse, but the light cast on the lighthouse. Some critics said that it was as if Hopper had to invent, uh, as if they'd been invented by him, lighthouses. Uh, they seemed to be so uh, talismanic of him. And of course, behind the sunlight, there's the light of painting itself, whether in watercolor or in oil. A light that is cast, therefore, from a different kind of lighthouse the lighthouse of artistic making. Perhaps the only house or room that Hopper could truly inhabit. His many lighthouses may be metaphorical self-portraits, each one a singular, tall, outposted, resolute source whose implied outward projections, like Hopper's creations, both luminous and yet warning, we can revisit at the dry shoreline of every Hopper painting. Here, there is always more to say, something which keeps us coming back and back, back to our opening slant of light, but also that keeps us coming back to the poems and literature we love, as well as to a truly great world museum such as this one a place of the muses, a place where we can look as if also to listen to something as yet incompletely remembered, something that is forever about to be not only re-illuminated, but about to be said. And I'll close with these 10 lines of Elizabeth Bishop's poem called Seascape. But a skeletal lighthouse standing there in black and white clerical dress, who lives on his nerves, thinks he knows better. He thinks that hell rages below his iron feet, that that is why the shallow water is so warm. And he knows that heaven is not like this. Heaven is not like flying or swimming, but has something to do with blackness and a strong glare. And when it gets dark, he will remember something strongly worded to say on the subject. Thank you. That was Peter Sachs speaking at the Art Institute of Chicago on March 13, 2008, as part of American Perspectives, a collaboration of the Art Institute the Chicago Symphony, and the Poetry Foundation. 
You can read some of the poems that Peter Sachs discussed by going to poetryfoundation.org. You'll also find articles about poetry, reading guides, and other audio programs to download. This has been Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.